As we begin in 1 Samuel, we follow mainly the prophets. We see um, that, that Samuel comes up as a young boy uh, in the house of God and begins to serve God, and God does amazing things through his life. And then the nation of Israel really takes a shift where they don't want to just follow God as their leader. They want to have a king. They want somebody to be the one that sort of leads them into battle through the difficulties, establish them as a real nation in the world. And so they call out for a king and God gives them what they desire and King Saul comes onto the mix. And then we sort of follow the the story of Saul and Saul is um, up and down, mostly down as we follow his life. And now in chapter 15, this is sort of the end of King Saul, if you will. This is when God uh, chooses, I am going to anoint somebody else um, as king. And so sort of this is the, the tragedy of Saul. Now his story continues on. We still follow him. Uh, he is still a main player in the book of 1 Samuel, primarily as he hunts down King David or the anointed King David throughout the rest of um, the book. But here we see the moment that really uh, uh, tore the kingdom from his hand. And I've titled this morning's message, if you take notes, What God Delights In. What God Delights In. Now, this chapter, as we work our way through it, is going to raise for us, I think, some challenging questions. Um, if there were like some of the top questions that people ask about God or the way he works um, or things like that, chapter 15 in it of itself brings up some of those questions. I, I won't even have to mention them. We'll, we'll read the text and you'll be like, wait a second. So we'll, we'll kind of work through some of these challenging questions together. But in it, we'll see the, in the midst of it, we see the mercy of God and really what brings him delight. And this chapter teaches us that God is holy and he delights in our worship and our obedience to him. But he also desires for us to worship him how he wants to be worshiped. This is important for us to understand that God delights in us in our worship to him, our obedience to him. But God also gives us a way in which he desires to be worshipped. Um, have you ever heard that idea um, that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship? Um, it, it's, a, it's a great sentiment, and I do agree with the heart of it. It's basically saying that it isn't about earning our salvation or relationship with God. I 100% agree, and it's about believing and receiving through Jesus. The problem with this idea of that Christianity is purely a relationship and not a religion is that it's created a generation of people that want to worship God however we want, and then when there are things about God or the church or our circumstances that we don't like or understand, we deconstruct. So there's this idea that like relationship with God, it's a relationship. So I just relate to him however I feel like relating to him. But the reality is, is God has actually given us a roadmap, a way in which we can know him, a way in which we can worship him, a way in which we can walk within his will. And so for us to fully experience both the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the plans of God, we have to learn to be obedient to the way God instructs us to both walk with him and worship him. God has actually called for us to know him and worship him in a particular way. There is a way to be saved. There is a way to live. There are things that God desires for us to do. And there are things that we do that can bring God delight. 
and a genuine faith allows for us to trust in God no matter what goes on around us. And I really want to encourage us as we get into this passage, uh, I want us to look at it with sort of childlike faith where we can simply trust God at his, at his word. Can I encourage you this morning, before we get into the text, can we approach it with a childlike faith? That we just say, I am choosing to trust God, his word, his ways, above even my own ideas or ideologies. I think the idea of childlike faith is so, uh, 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 such a good reminder for us because children, uh, well, let me give you an example. I've got 10 nieces and nephews. Um, my uh, brother has a son named Sid Nathan. Shout out Sid Nathan. Um, and he's about uh, one and a half. And uh, we've been going to the beach and I've been putting him on the surfboard with me and uh, paddling him out. And just recently I, I caught a wave, and I stood him up, and he wrote it with me for the first time. It was awesome. Um, he is uh, oblivious and completely thinks, I mean, he, I don't even think he understands what's happening, but he knows that I've got him, right? He's not worried. Now, his mom, on the other, side, on the other hand, might be a little stressed on the beach, but Sid Nathan trusts me, right? Sid Nathan knows that I'm not going to drop him I think, I hope, that's the plan. Um, nothing bad's going to happen to him. He completely trusts exactly what I'm doing, even if the situation might seem overwhelming or confusing. And I think that's the idea that we need to approach this text with this morning. God, you're in control. God, you know what you're doing. God, your ways are always right and just and fair. And I am choosing to submit myself to trust in who you are and in your ways beyond even what I can comprehend or my intellect or my circumstances would say. This is the framework that I want us to work uh, with as we move through this chapter. All right, uh, 1 Samuel 15, verse 1, it says this. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. This is God speaking through Samuel to Saul. Go and attack Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from uh, Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. We'll pause right there. We'll, we'll make our way through the whole chapter. 
But I think right away there's probably a question that sort of comes up in our mind. The first question, at least that I have when I read a text like this, and maybe you have it uh, too, is you can write this down. Thought one, question one. Why does God command the annihilation of a people group? It's 10 a.m. I'm sorry. <laughs> Here we are. This is, you can talk to Josiah next week about it. Why did he ask me for Samuel 15? No. Why does God command the annihilation of a people group? This section, um, it seems pretty savage and unlike God, right? God says, all right, this is, the, this is what I command you to do. Go to the Amalekites and completely wipe them out. And then he gives details. Men and women and children, and infants, and nursing children, and, and, and all the animal everything, I want you to completely and utterly destroy it. Now, before we jump to conclusions, this text gives us a little bit of insight, and there are answers to a question like this. The problem when we approach texts like this oftentimes is we read something and jump to a conclusion. We think, Okay, this is what happens, so this is what God's like. Even our own circumstances, we tend to do the same thing. We have difficult circumstances, so we jump to conclusions about God. We have a bad encounter with a person, we jump to conclusions about that person. Like an awkward first meeting, and we're like, okay, they're like this. And so before we jump to any conclusions, we have to understand, okay, what is happening? Where are we going? What is God doing? And this text gives us insight into what's going on. God is punishing Amalek for what they did. He says that. He says in verse... Um, in verse 3, now go and destroy Amalek and utterly destroy them. Uh, excuse me, verse 2, he says, I will punish Amalek for what they did to Israel. Now, if you read that, it should cause you to ask a question if you don't already know. Well, what did they do to Israel? Right? That should be the question. When you're reading through the book of the, a book of the Bible or a story in the Bible and you get to, okay, this is a little clue for us to understand. Go destroy them for what they did to Israel. So what did they do to Israel? About 400 years before this time, when the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites ambushed and attacked the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 25 says it like this. Remember, this is God speaking, what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now, this story uh, that is being referenced in Deuteronomy 25 is the famous story when Moses held up his staff in battle against the Amalekites. Do you guys remember the story? They're in battle, and sort of the promise to Moses was, as long as you kept your staff raised, the people of Israel will have victory over the Amalekites. And if your hands get heavy and the staff goes down, then the Amalekites will begin to have victory over you. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture of service and leadership as Moses is lifting up his hands. Joshua is leading the battle. And then Aaron and Hur, some of Moses' sort of comrades, come together and prop up the hands of Moses so that he can continue to hold up his 
rod. So it's a, it's, a, it's a famous story, but Deuteronomy gives us insight to it. It says when that event happened, what started that battle was as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and they were going towards the promised land, the Amalekites came around the back and attacked them at, at the, at, from the back. And the problem with that is if you've got like a million people walking out of Egypt, the slowest and the weakest and maybe the sick or the pregnant or the elderly or, 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 or the ch- those are going to be the ones that sort of drift off into the back. And so the Amalekites, as they attacked the people of Israel intentionally, they attacked them in their weakest position. And God says, remember when they did that? And then God makes a promise, right? God makes a promise. He says, I'm not going to forget that. And when you're established in the nation of Israel, once you've settled, once the land is yours and you guys have settled in that land, I'm not going to forget that. And we are going to punish the sins of the Amalekites. So God made a promise that he would deal with the sins of the Amalekites. And 400 years later, listen, God is fulfilling his promise. Because listen, time does not erase sin before God. One of the primary story arcs in the Old Testament is God preserving his people to provide the promised Messiah into the world. One of the primary story arcs in the Old Testament, when you're following through from Genesis all the way through Malachi, when you're following this story, the primary objective is God uh, uh, preserving the people of Israel so that the promised Messiah, i.e. Jesus, will come into the world so he can save the world from their sins. That's sort of what's happening underneath the surface throughout the whole Old Testament. So the protection of the people of Israel is primary to the plans of God. We see this as he chooses Abraham in the book of Genesis. We see this as he uh, delivers the the Israelites out of bondage to the Egyptians. We see this even when the people are scattered and taken off into captivity by the Babylonians and then later to the Assyrians, that God will bring them back into the land. God is protecting the people of Israel because the people of Israel are primary to the plans of God. And so in this moment, God is both fulfilling a promise And he is dealing with injustice. God does not forget injustice. But in his mercy, he doesn't punish the guilty immediately. This is what we could call delayed justice as a result of his compassion and mercy. For 400 years, the Amalekites uh, really, you could say, had opportunity to repent. There are lots of times in the Old Testament when God makes the statement like, I'm going to deal with these people, and then their repentance leads to their salvation. Think of Nineveh and the story of Jonah, right? Jonah gets called to leave where he lives to go to Nineveh, which is a part of Assyria, a wicked city. And God gives, hey, go preach uh, the gospel, essentially, to the people of Nineveh. If not, I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah goes up and gives the sorriest message you've ever heard. The sorriest message. He's like, you all are going to die, is basically his message. And we're told that the entire city repents from that message. Like, jeez, this guy. This, that you could see the ache that they had for, for hope. And he preaches this message. They repent. And then God relents from his judgment on them. 
And then Jonah's all mad. You know the story? He goes in, like, pouts in the corner, like, God, I thought you were going to wipe him out. I thought there was going to be a fireworks show. That's why I'm here. And a God relents from, from destroying them, at least in this particular time period. So God, for 400 years, is patient and merciful on the Amalekites. And now, after these 400 years, God is fulfilling a promise. God is slow to anger, and he abounds in mercy. It's delayed justice. In Exodus, Moses asks uh, to see the glory of God. He, he, he has this desire. He wants to see God's glory. And God tells Moses that he can't see God's glory, but he can see his back. And as he passes by, Moses is going to be hidden uh, in a cave, essentially. God's going to pass by. And as he passes by, God's going to declare his own name. God is going to speak of himself. And as God passes by, he declares his name. And listen to what God says about himself. He says, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then listen, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The 400 years of delayed justice is God's mercy for the people of Amalek. But God doesn't allow the guilty to go unpunished. And this is what makes the gospel so beautiful. The gospel is that the punishment of our iniquity was placed on the back of Jesus. We all cry out. We all ache for justice, don't we? When something inhumane or wicked or, or, or something that we can't wrap our minds around happens, we want justice. We ache for justice. And God is the same way. He requires, he demands justice. And the justice that we've received in Jesus is that, that although we are sinful, although we deserve the punishment, although we deserve the, 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 the wrath of God, Jesus bears it on our behalf so that we can be made right in God. That's what your whole church is about. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This exchange that takes place of us be, being made right before God through the grace and mercy of Jesus. So why does God demand the annihilation of an entire people group? Well, it's delayed justice as a result of God's mercy. And it's also an invitation for all of us to receive the grace and the forgiveness that's found in relationship with him. Now, continue on. We will get to another fascinating question in this text. Now, I want us to kind of go back as I answer the question, but I also want us to see what's happening God commands Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. The why, we just talked about, but the command was the same. Saul, go and deal with the Amalekites. Does Saul do it, yes or no? No, not entirely. He goes and then God says, deal with it all. And then we're told that he kept the king alive and he kept all that was good. But the things that he didn't like, the despised and worthless things, he destroyed. So he kept some. He didn't fulfill God's word entirely. Continuing on, verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. 
For he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he's gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. Notice this language. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. Listen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Okay, we'll pause right there. We'll get into the story in a minute. But I want us to notice a second sort of alarming question that, it, that should be brought up. And the question is this. Does God have regrets? Notice, notice again, verse 11. God speaking. He says, I, God speaking, greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. The, the word uh, regret is the Hebrew word Nahum, and it literally means to repent. So the language that's used here, God speaking, once again, God says, I repent from having made Saul king. Is anybody very confused now? Why on earth? Wait a second. <laughs> so first we're talking about God uh, causing uh, an entire people group to be wiped out. And the second thing in the same chapter, God goes, I repent from making Saul king. What are we talking about? Well, Josiah will be here next week. He'll answer that question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think this is probably even more disturbing than the first thought. Because there, one of the things that we know about God is that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. That all the promises of God are yes and amen. That God doesn't change. There's no shadow of turning with God. So why would, why would God have to say this? Now, there's a, there's a few things that will help us understand this. The first thing is we approach texts like this with childlike faith. Okay, I'm going to go back to Sid and me on the surfboard. Childlike faith. And we just go, okay, God, what, I trust you. You're in control. You're still God. My, my experience or my circumstance or my, my, the information anything like that does not change who you are. You are the same. So what, what is happening in this story? The first thing that helps us to understand this is that God is using a human expression to convey the heaviness of a situation. God is using a human expression to convey the heaviness of the situation. Saul was chosen to be the king of Israel. There was a lot of hope placed in King Saul. He would lead them into battle. He would help form and establish Israel as a serious people group. He would also help lead the spiritual formation of the nation. And that the, the rising and falling of the nation would often be linked to the, the obedience to the kings to follow God. As you guys continue through this series and you get to other kings past David, every king from that point on will be compared to King David. Every king, they'll either be like their father David and they did all that was right in the eyes of God or they will be unlike their father David and they did what was right in their own eyes and they sacrificed on the high places and they followed the Baals and they did this, that, and the other. And the nation of Israel is going to follow in the way of their king. 
So as, as people like Josiah or Hezekiah or David or Solomon early in his life follow after God, the nation will follow along with them. But as other kings like Ahab and, and many of the other wicked kings that would come up, the nation is going to follow in that same way. So the, so the king, there's a lot of hope on the king. Here this guy is that's not only going to lead them into battle, not only going to set them up as a nation, but he is going to be a part of the spiritual formation of the people. And now he's failed yet again, and God is, is seeing this reality. Now that he's failed, God is sort of... Uh, now he's failed, and God is sort of shifting the direction. And the emotion conveyed is to show that God isn't flippantly moving on from Saul. God isn't sort of up in heaven with a clipboard checking boxes to see if he's fitting and when he misses a few boxes, God's going to fire the king. That's not what's happening. God's not up there and like, okay, he did that all right? Nope. Oh, man. One more, one more strike and he's out of here. Oh, last one. He's gone. Find us a new one. Let's move along. We're done with this guy. That's not the heart of God at all. When God says, I, I regret, he's basically saying, I recognize the heaviness of moving from Saul to somebody else. God's not just like, all right, in with the old or out with the old, in with the new. I'm done with this guy. Let's move along. Where's David at? That's not the heart of God at all. God recognizes and, and, and sees the heaviness of the situation. But the way he uses repent or regret is not the same way you and I use the word repent or regret. God's not like, ah, man, I, I messed up. Oh, all right. Well, we'll try again with David. It's all good. Let's run it back. That's not God. God is saying, I, I see, I understand I know the heaviness of the situation, and it's, it's through Saul's decision that we've come to this. God feels it. Another, another word you could use here, rather than repent or regret, is that God is grieved that he made Saul king. God is grieved, and God can be grieved. Uh, Charles Spurgeon on God being gr grieved said this, quote, when I commit any offense, some friend who hath but little patience suddenly snaps asunder his forbearance and is angry with me. The same offense is observed by a loving father, and he is grieved. There is anger in his bosom, but he is angry and he sins not, for, his, for he is angry against my sin. And yet there is love to neutralize and modify the anger towards me. Instead of wishing me ill as the punishment of my sin, he looks upon my sin itself as being the ill. He grieves to think that I'm already injured from the fact that I have sinned. That is the heart of God. That, that sin and failure and mistake grieves the heart of God. And what grieves him is in his love. He doesn't want us to be, he doesn't wish me ill like he says, but rather he looks at the, the consequences and the result of sin as the, as the ill. So we need to understand that God is using human expression. He is grieved to convey the heaviness of the situation. The second thing we need to understand is that when it comes to this idea is that God doesn't change, but we change. 
And when coming to a passage like this, like I said, we can't jump to a conclusion, especially theological conclusions. We have to sort of, what's the story that's being told here? What's happening? What, 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 is the, what does the writer want us to understand? The story that's happening is the life and the failure of King Saul, right? We've been seeing this throughout. So Saul was anointed king. And, and from the very beginning, Saul's fear is what drives a lot of his decision and things like that. From the very beginning when Saul's hiding amongst the stuff, unwilling to step out and be king, to the fact that he doesn't fully obey God, to later on when he's chasing down David because his kingdom feels threatened. Saul is often motivated and driven by fear, and his fear shapes his decisions. That is so much of his story. And this, this is what we're moving through. We're seeing that over and over, Saul had opportunity to follow God with his whole heart. And yet through countless choices, he's rejected the ways of God and he did what he wanted. And God is moving in a direction and he invites us by his grace to join him in that direction. But if we turn from that, we set our face against him, not the other way around. Right? God invites Saul into a way. Hey, you're going to be the king. We're going this direction. As Saul turns from the way of God, he's, his face is set against God. Not because God changes his mind. Not because God changes his direction. Because Saul is not walking in the way of God. And so we see this, that, that the reason the, the, the shift happens is not because God is, all right, I'm done with you. Get out of here but because Saul over and over again willingly ignores the word of God and chooses to do whatever he wants. And as we follow God, our goal is to place ourselves in the direction of God and remain where God wants us. All right, last section. You guys still with me? Gets a little bit better from here, (laughs) I promise. Um, So let's follow the story real quick. Saul, or excuse me, God gives a command to Saul through Samuel, go and attack the Amalekites. Saul goes, and he does, uh, he does not complete it. He does about half of it. And then Saul shows up, or excuse me, Samuel shows up and says, how, how'd it go? And Saul's like, great, I did it. I nailed it. Like, they're gone. They're out of here. And I love Samuel's response. He's like, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? What's that sound? Why, why, do I hear, why do I hear cows mooing? And he's like, oh, well, uh, I didn't think you'd notice that. But um, uh, they, they took them, and they did it because they wanted to offer a sacrifice to your God, obviously. And they're like, he's like, I don't think so. That, that's kind of not, that's not the move right now. And look at verse 16, it continues. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. When, uh, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which have uh, been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord 
as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed rather than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. Listen, this really answers the question before, but he says, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made woman, women childless, so, your, uh, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Not to make light of this situation, but I really picture like, um, like Yoda, a scene like with Yoda from Star Wars. I don't know. Just like Samuel in his robe and just like doing flips. I don't, sorry, that's just me. Um, then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to the house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Saul, Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The last question I want us to consider, and this is really where we're going to land the plane, is what does God delight in? What does God delight in? The chapter ends with Samuel both having to rebuke Saul for what he didn't do and inform him that God has rejected him as king because he's rejected the word of God. But we get really a nugget of beauty in this chapter. We see what God delights in. And I want us to close by looking from this text and a few others what God delights in. Because there's a few times in the Old Testament that says God delights in something. I think it's important for us as we understand walking with God and the ways of God and, and following after him to answer this question for ourselves. What does God delight in? What brings God, if, if, if our uh, a rejection of him and things like this causes grief, what would bring him joy? What brings him delight? Well, the first thing we see in this text is God delights in obedience. God delights in obedience. And this is really the heart of the whole chapter and the life of Saul in general. God delights in obedience. And obedience to God is when we willfully submit to his word and his ways. Obedience to God is when we willfully choose to submit ourselves to the word of God and the ways of God. And partial obedience is not obedience. That's what this story teaches us. Partial obedience is is not obedience. Saul lived his life with partial obedience. Samuel confronts him and he says, what? I, I did what I was supposed to do. Like, what's the big deal? I did it. And Samuel responds, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? What, this, it's not. You didn't do what you're supposed to do. Because partial obedience halfway isn't 
full obedience. And God delights in obedience, full obedience, complete surrender to him. Jesus says, if anybody wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. There's an invitation really to come and die, to give up of ourselves and our life and even our ambition or our dreams or our our feelings and things like that and willfully lay it down at Christ's feet and say, I am choosing to follow your way even above what I want. God invites us into full submission and surrender to him. The second thing about obedience, partial obedience, not obedience, but also disobedience stems from greedy desire. We're told that they kept all that was good, the livestock, maybe clothes or treasure. It stemmed from a personal desi- a desire for personal gain. Often the justification we have when we don't listen to God's word is because we think that uh, doing it a different way will actually turn out to be better for us. I think sometimes, and, and I, I know I'm, I find myself thinking like this, or it's like, maybe not in so many words, but God's busy There's a lot of people that he thinks about. He's trying to make it happen for everyone. So if I just make it happen for me, I'll just kind of, you know, take some of the load off God a little bit. And that's not the language I would, we probably don't articulate it like that in our minds. But there is a sense where we're like, I know what I want. They don't know what I want. He doesn't know what I want. I know what I want. Really, we don't know what we want. But I'll figure it out. I can get there. I I can make it happen. And so the, the invitation this, the, the, to obedience is saying, okay, rather than motivated by your own desire and what I think I want, recognize that who God is and what he's doing is ultimately what we need. God delights in our obedience. The second thing that God delights in um, is faithfulness to him. Listen to Psalms uh, 18. David, King David is writing. He says, he has also brought me into a broad place. He delivered me, listen, because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Now, David is writing and he makes, this is some pretty like powerful claims he makes about his own life. I'm gonna read it again. God's brought me out. He delivered me because he delighted me. And it said, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and I have not wickedly departed from my God. Now, if we know the story of King David and you'll get there as you move through this story, his life was far from perfect, right? I mean, so much of what what puts David on the map is how relatable he is because his life wasn't perfect. And yet he makes a statement and he says, God has delivered me. God has delighted in me because of my own righteousness. The point he's making is although he wasn't perfect, he was far from it. He remained faithful to God throughout his life. God delights in those that remain faithful to him. Walking with God isn't about doing it for just a little bit of time, but for a lifetime. It's not just about a season of our life where we say, okay, I was sold out for God, you know, for these three years. And then the rest of the time, it was like halfway. It's partial. I was the round. God delights in people that are remain faithful to him, committed to him for our whole lives. 
And being a follower of Jesus is both a decision that you make and a direction that you head in. And God delights in those that remain faithful to him. And then the third thing, the final thing, is that God delights in repentance. Repentance. Listen to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. It says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. and his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. This is a promise. The book of Zephaniah really is a promise to the people of God that when they repent and turn back to him, God will continue to bless them. That as they turn back to God, as they leave the way of life that they're living in, the decisions that they're making, and they turn back to God, he uh, delights in them. God does not expect people to be perfect. He has grace for our mistakes, but God does delight in genuine repentance. This is another problem with Saul. Even his repentance was insincere. Look again at verse 24. It says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And then he says, he makes an excuse, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So even in his repentance, right, he's like, but it's because they made me do it. Like, I, I know, I shouldn't have done that, I'm sorry, my bad, but it was their fault. And then look again in verse 30, it says, Then he said, again, Saul speaking, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Basically what he's saying is he's asking Samuel to perform a sacrifice that they would do after victorious battle as a seal of God's sort of thumbs up on what Saul had done. So he says, so, but wait, 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 before you go honor me before the elders. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't have done that, but will you let everybody know that we're good? That's kind of his idea. And so even his repentance wasn't repentance. Even his repentance was, was oh, but it was their fault, or, or just let's just say we're all good, show everybody we're all good, and then we'll worry about the details later. God delights in our rep- repentance, and he is faithful to forgive us. God delights in us. He loves us. He's compassionate toward us. But listen, he is just. He desires to be worshiped and known the way he's revealed to us. And when we can trust God and worship him as he's revealed to us, we can walk confidently with him and know that we're living pleasing to him. And I want to encourage us today. I I know uh, it is kind of an overwhelming passage, and I pray that God was speaking to you. And if you do have a problem, again, blame Pastor Josiah. It's all his fault. Um, But I do think it's important for us, especially in a, a culture that wants to just say, I want to I do what I want to do, and I also want God's approval on it. Like, I, I want just the thumbs up from God, and I want to do exactly what I want to do. And then what happens is when, when things get in the way of that, we draw conclusions about God. We say, okay, well, God isn't that loving, or God doesn't, uh, isn't in control, or God doesn't care about me, or we jump to these conclusions. And the, the, the invitation that we have is to lay our whole life down to God. Say, Jesus, I am, I am submitting myself to you entirely. 
And even the parts that I don't understand now or the parts that I will never understand, I'm choosing to believe that, God, you are faithful. You are just. You are above it all. You know the end from the beginning. You are the same. There is no shadow of turning in you. And so, God, I am choosing to trust in you and your goodness and your mercy and your grace on my life. And if we can bow our knees completely to trust in who God is with faith like a child, we will find ourselves unlike Saul, but more like King David as we find ourselves humble and uh, uh, willing to repent and be corrected and, and transformed from the inside out. And that's the prayer for my life is that I would continue to allow God to shape and change me, that I wouldn't come to conclusions or come to final decisions about God or his ways or things like that based upon a present circumstance. How unfair is that to say, okay, my life is hard right now. That means this is why, because God is like this or because of this, that, and the other, rather than going, okay, God, you are with me through it all, and I'm going to trust in you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We do thank you that you are... Um, you are gracious and merciful to us. Lord, we don't, we don't deserve it. Your word tells us that it's by grace we're saved. It's not of works. We, we don't deserve it. And yet, Lord, you see us, you care about us, you know us. But Lord, we also thank you and praise you for you are a just and holy God. You are, you are, you dwell in the holy of holies in the Old Testament, we see this, there's just this reality of who you are in your presence. And so, Lord, forgive us for when we, when we sort of make conclusions about who you are. Thank you for your holiness and your justice. Thank you for your righteousness and your fairness. And, God, would you continue to work in our lives? Would we be submitted to the way that you're working specifically in our lives right now? And, Lord, we, we want to be people that live lives that you delight in. So, Lord, help us to walk in obedience. Help us to remain faithful. Help us to be quick to repent. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and the worship team is gonna close us in a final song.